Sasha Thompson is a respected and certified DEI coach. For the next 30 minutes, we'll get an exclusive look at some of her conversations with others in the field. Welcome to DEI After Five. Hello and welcome to DEI After Five. I am really looking forward to this conversation because probably about a year ago, uh, I was moderating a panel and this particular guest was on and everything that she said was just like a golden nugget for me. And so when we were planning for this show, I knew that I had to have her on here. So today's guest is Janet Stobel. She is a TEDx speaker. She is a diversity pragmatist. She is just amazing. And so welcome, Janet. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Looking forward Thank to this. You. Yes. So for those that may not know much about you, which I don't know how they can, um, you know, talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you got into diversity and inclusion work. Well, actually, by all, by all practical purposes, I was born into it. I mean, it's hard to be who I am and not be in the space. But um, in terms of moving into it in the corporate space, I'd be lying if I told you that there was a steady path. I am primarily a communicator. Um, my work in marketing and communications, I ran my own consulting firm for 21 years. And then when I decided to go back to the dark side and go back into corporate, you know, I like stock options. So I did. Um, and I went to work for UPS and was a speechwriter for the CEO of UPS. That position in a company that size, you know, with 500,000 employees around the world, gives you a little air cover to do some things. Mm -hmm. So by the time I went back into corporate America in 2017 um, and had worked with companies and CEOs for 21 years, sort of individually, that position allowed me to start doing the work that I thought was important. And I had the support of a CEO who would let me do it. So mm -hmm. I kind of cut my teeth in the DEI space and the corporate space in a company that size at UPS. So I started doing work there. I helped build the Equity, Justice, and Action Task Force. I helped that CEO envision his DEI journey in many ways. And so from there, I just kind of kept staying and doing it. And now I'm at the Neuro Leadership Institute, and I'm part of the consulting team there. I am also on the keynote team. So I do education and delivery. And as part of the consulting team, I actually build DEI journeys for companies, Fortune 100 companies all over the world. I'm trying to figure out where I want to go next with this, because you said so, so many things that I want to tap <laughs> into, but no, I think it's great. And I think one of the things that really drew me to you was that your background was in marketing and communications as well, exactly. right? So I did it in marketing. And for so many people, they feel the only way to get into diversity and inclusion is through HR. And, you know, when you and I spoke, we talked about it, even a lot of your posts talk about the importance of communications and the importance of being able to do that internally and externally. Um, and, and how do you make sure that your diversity and inclusion is authentic and accurate and not just window dressing? Absolutely. Right? I mean, I, the thing is, is if you think about what a, tr a normal, if there's such a thing, because I don't think it's cookie cutter, but a, um, a commonplace DEI strategy in a company is, it may sound self-serving to say this, but I believe 85 to 95% of it is communications. It is mm -hmm. how people communicate 
how leaders create a vision, communicate that to their direct reports, who then have to communicate that down the organizational um, org chart, how you communicate to employees, how you communicate about what you're doing as an organization to the outside world, how leaders within an organization communicate ideally with each other to make sure that DEI doesn't get siloed with a mm-hmm. chief diversity officer or doesn't get siloed in HR. If you want it to spread around the organization, it's all about communication. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hire people to build programs and they do amazing jobs of that. You hire people to build metric systems for you. They do amazing jobs of that. But the communication is something that has to happen all the time, everywhere. So mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer that some of the best chief diversity officers probably should be former communicators or they're never former, but, um, but communicators. I mean, how often do you take somebody who came out of that space and move them into a chief diversity role? You don't often. I'm actually doing a project right now for myself personally, where I'm looking at the, um, I'm looking very much at the um, diversity officers that are in the fortune 100 and I'm tracing sort of figure out what their backgrounds are. Mm. I don't see too many who came out of comms. Those came out of HR or legal. Right. Which then, that's a whole other conversation for me, um, because then I think it's you know focused on compliance Excellent. versus communication and understanding and and learning, right? Exactly. Which is a whole other ball of wax. You know, one of the things that we we talked about when we did the webinar, gosh, it's almost been a, a year. Um, wow, I know it's almost been a year. Is how this work is just interdisciplinary. And we were having this conversation about where colleges and universities right now could just create the new normal and what DEI is and create this interdisciplinary um, offering, right? If it's a degree, if it's a master's or PhD or even an undergraduate degree in mm-hmm. diversity, equity and inclusion and what would that look like? Um, and so you had shared some some thoughts there that I think would be important for people to think about because again, so many folks are are tied to DEI being an HR, but there's so much more to it. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about what you have to understand to be effective in DEI, that's partially why it's sort of the wild, wild west out there right now, because people are trying to define it. And it's it's good in a way. Um, that people are interested. It's it's sad why. I mean, let's face it, this this kicked into high gear two years ago with the murder yeah. of George Floyd. All of a sudden now, companies are very interested looking at it, especially from a racial standpoint. Um, but on the one hand, that, that newfound attention is great because now we're getting some traction in the space. On the other hand, it means there's a whole lot of snake oil that's getting sold in the business. Yeah. And what could help that would be for the academy to develop a body of knowledge and standardize it and teach just like we do anything else. Um, but what's going to be required is in, in business schools, you can't teach DEI as a straight business function. You just cannot. Mm-hmm. That should be part of it. People should understand why companies care about doing this and what, it, what the effect should be. But you also got to have some background in sociology you know, you got to have some background in history, which is why everybody's mad about, you know, well, some folks are mad yeah. about CRT right now because they know that um, despite the fact that that's not what is being taught, they don't want history taught because history is mm-hmm. powerful. History tells us how we got where we are 
right now. Mm -hmm. And you understand that we didn't just suddenly get to the place that we are. And it's not a function of people's moral failings. It is a system. And so we don't want history taught, some of us, because then we got to accept that the system is what got us here. But you got to know that. So if you're going to be in the DEI space, you need to know that. And what has happened is that those of us who are in this space, most of us who are here now, sort of the, uh, the people who are doing the work, a lot of us are in it because we have a passion for it, because we naturally had an interest or an affinity to some of these areas of expertise. We either came out of sociology or, mm-hmm. or communications, and we have a natural interest in history and how things are put together. We want to paint that big picture, but there's no way that we can standardize that and make it. And there are some certification programs coming out there. Some of them are pretty good. I've done two. Um, mm-hmm. I did one through Yale and one through Cornell. And Georgetown has one and they're coming out, but they're certification programs. I'd love to see somebody be able to get a degree in this, to give it four years or more of extended study and put the real world experience into it. Because you can you can get pieces of it. You can get psych, social, whatever. But where's the best practice going to come from if we don't do it that way? Yeah. And And I think that's the one I was just like, yes, because my background is in sociology. Right. But I love my anthropology. I loved history. I love mm-hmm. putting all of these things together to understand how we how we how do we get here? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so important, as you said, um, and so many people. Because if we don't say, know how we got here, we don't know how, how we don't get away going. from this. Right. We don't know <laughs> well, we, there's no path. There's absolutely there's no path. No path. Right. Um, and so I think that's a critical piece of this work. It's not let's just pick up from where we are today. Because we need to understand what shaped how we got to this point so that we can now know what systems we need to dismantle or what um, programs or whatever it is to counterbalance what's been put in place. Absolutely. I think that that's. Yes. Go ahead. And to see how all the systems are interconnected, you know, because we think about uh, sort of what systemic inequity is. And I focus mm-hmm. a lot on racism because I think that's the big rock we got to move. I think if we move that rock, the smaller mm-hmm. rocks will follow. But so if you just think about if you think about just one one type of systemic inequity, you think about um, racism. Systemic is not the same thing as systematic. Right. Systematic inequity or racism is about the laws, the things we see on the books, the things we can point to. And for the most part, that's not here anymore. And a lot of people think that because you don't have laws on the books anymore that tell people they can discriminate legally, that, all right, we're fine. We're post-racial. We're we're this. We had a black president. No, Mm -hmm. because what happens is the legacy of that systematic racism is a systemic racism. The laws around housing, the laws around what could be done to bodies of color medically in, in healthcare. The laws mm-hmm. around what we did in education and who could get an education and who couldn't. The laws around, uh, heaven forbid, the laws in the, in the legal sphere, judicial laws. Those things may be gone now, but their legacy is there and they built a system. So if we don't understand that this stuff is systemic, we walk around and we're surprised. We look at people mm-hmm. and individuals and we try to put the blame on it. So if you're not wearing a hood, then you can't be racist. The bottom line is if you live in a racist society, it's like being a fish in water. You're surrounded by it. It's part of who yeah. you breathe it every day. You live in it. 
and um, you know, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, one of the things I think that's most powerful in that is he says, you know, you can't, if you're not actively being anti-racist, mm-hmm. you are being racist. And yeah. I wish we had another word that weren't so triggering, but we don't yet. Not yet. We communicators haven't figured out what should be yet. But um, so the bottom line is you have to be actively working against it. And you can't understand that unless you understand it's the system, it's the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in. And if you don't look at it that way, if you think it's somehow outside of you or it was mm-hmm. in the past, whatever, if you don't have that kind of comprehensive view, you don't work to fix it. You can't. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of what's happening in a lot of these companies right now is they're looking at, okay, in this moment in our organization, we don't have these rules, regulations to discriminate. So we're all good until people that are marginalized speak up and say, no, right? Not how I'm treated. When you look at the numbers of who's leaving or who's getting promoted, right? Mm -hmm. There is an underlying system in place that's pushing me out. People don't usually leave. I mean, I'm not going to say, I say usually. Most of the time when you have people, especially people of color, when you start seeing a whole bunch of people of color walking out of a space, it's your culture. It's yeah. toxic. It is not just that black people had a cookout one day and said, oh, let's just all leave. That's not what happens. You <laughs> right. know, it is not. And it's generally not about money. Um, or if it is about money, it, it may manifest that way. But the issue is not money. It may be the issue may be promotion. You know, mm-hmm. you make more money by going up the ladder and you stay there. And, and if you don't go up the ladder, you don't make more money. But usually there's not even that. It is generally the culture itself. And so, you know, what kills me is companies know either they don't pay attention to the trends or they Mm -hmm. see the trends and say, well, we just don't understand what's going on. Why can't we keep people? Well, you know what? Ask the question. It's Mm -hmm. it's your culture at the end of the day. Right. And that leads to, so this is why I'm like, oh, I don't want to unpack this whole HR thing. But I think that that's part of the problem, right? If you Mm -hmm. don't, if you have people in these roles that are responsible for culture, but don't understand what culture is. It's never taken an anthropology class to understand what culture is and what makes up culture or understands how culture, how subcultures can mm-hmm. um, create larger cultures um, and the impacts of that. Then when you see these numbers, when you see the statistics, it goes over your head as to what's really happening. And it has to be everything else but culture because yeah. that's what you're responsible for. And because you don't see, a, and because unfortunately, if you don't see a problem with culture, it's like, like I said, let's, let's do that fish and water thing. Mm-hmm. If you are a saltwater fish in a freshwater pond, you can't breathe. But if you're a saltwater fish in the ocean, you don't see a problem. It's nope. the ocean. So everybody should be swimming like this. And if you've never seen a freshwater fish or never had to, to swim in their ocean or their water to understand it, you don't understand why it's a problem. And so this is where training Mm -hmm. and understanding other perspectives, and you don't get that just by having a conversation with people. Because like I said, even though inequity manifests and exhibits itself in interpersonal relationships, that is not how it gets fixed. That's not going to overall fix the problem. You can help people get along all day, but if you don't fix the system, if you don't fix the culture, then those interpersonal relationships are fine, but they're not going to change anything dramatically. And and the onus of dealing with it. I mean, what the word we hear now so much is culture of belonging. I personally yes. can't stand that word. Me because either. I hate it. I hate it. Because 
I did a webinar um, with a wonderful scientist, Dr. Brian Lowry, who's at Stanford. And we were talking about this. And I said, you know, that word grates my nerves. And he raised a question that I think is very powerful. He says, the question is, to whom does the space belong? If it's not your space and you tell somebody, I want you to feel a culture of belonging, I can invite you to my house and mm-hmm. have invite you over for dinner and say, I want you to feel a source of belonging. But let's say I decide to serve a charcuterie board, which is all pork and all cheese, and you are lactose intolerant and a vegetarian. I can mm-hmm. tell you, I want you to belong all day. But if I don't do something to make you feel comfortable in that space, then I don't really mm-hmm. care whether you belong or not. I'm telling you, this is my space and I'm going to let you in it, but I don't really care whether you feel a sense of belonging. If I do care, I'm going to do something different in that space because I own that space. So to me, saying you want to create a culture of belonging, you don't control that. You can't make anybody belong. What you can mm-hmm. do is you can create an inclusive culture yes. that you control. Create that. And then people have the opportunity to feel a sense of belonging. You cannot create that for somebody. I 110% agree. And like two things came up for me. One, I was um, listening back to the episode that we did with Lolita Chandler, who you Mm -hmm. had at Cornell. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, there's this phrase of, you know, we want people to be their authentic selves and come to work as their authentic selves. It's just like, whose responsibility is that? Right. You need to create an environment that allows me to be my authentic self and not feel as if I have to change or have to code switch or do any of those things, right? The onus is on the company and the organization to create that environment. It's not on the employee. That's why I don't like belonging is for the same reason, because you put the onus of inclusion on the person who is excluded. Right. You put the onus of authenticity on the person who's had to shield their authenticity. That's a real cop-out for a company. And it's real easy to say, we don't have to do anything. Uh-huh. You just do what you do. And nobody brings their authentic self to work. Well, I'll put it this way, maybe some people do, but I know people who look like us are not going to bring their authentic selves to work. And, 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 and that's a shame. But within the realm of what you could truly be authentic, as authentic as you can be in your workspace, you're right. You have to create a space where people can do that. And you yes. can't just tell them, this is what you got. This is, I, I own this space, but you bring yourself into it and be authentic. No, that doesn't work that way. Yeah. You're right. And that belonging is really, it's a box, right? You, you will feel like you belong if you fit into this box. Exactly. If right. you don't do what you need to do to morph and, you know, twist your body to fit into this box, then we've done what we need. We created the box. We created the box. We created a space for you. It's our space. We own it. We did it. Yeah. But come on in. Do what you do. What you do. Be authentic. Right. No. Like I said, if That's I'm a saltwater, if I'm a freshwater fish in saltwater pond, um, I can want to belong all I want. I'm going to die. Yes. <laughs> Just, I'm not going to make it. So, yeah. Yeah. I agree. Something else you touched on earlier <clears throat> that I, I had, I'd written a note about was the use of certain words, right? You're saying like, there's no word for anti-racist that's less triggering. And you did a post not too long ago about like, what does woke mean? Mm -hmm. Um, And the meaning of woke. And so for me, it's like the power of words and how do we, one, do we know the words that we're using and the meaning behind them? And are we being intentional in using them? And the reason this came up and I want to talk to you about it, I was looking at another post the other day 
about um, a woman that went into a training and the mm -hmm. facilitator said, oh, this is a psychologically safe space. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can't just say it's a psychologically safe space. Like you don't understand the concept of what that is. Yes. You can't no. just declare it. Mm -hmm. Right. And you have to create it. You have to build trust. You have to, you know, do all of it. I, as the facilitator, need to do the work in order to make this a safe space. Right. Exactly. A psychologically safe space. And so I wanted to talk to you about like the importance of words and how, especially now, it's important that practitioners know the meaning of these words, know kind of the, the foundations of this work before we just throw out terms like allies, one that I can't stand, but you know, what, well, how allies, that you, is. Can't, you can't call yourself an ally. Somebody else, gets to name, you don't get to name yourself an ally. Somebody else doesn't name you that. Yeah. I'm, I have difficulty with that one a little bit too. Um, <laughs> words are incredible. And I mean, that's not just us as communicators saying that because we have a vested interest in it. Um, I'm actually writing a book. I have a co-author uh, Kim Clark and I are writing a book and it's called The Conscious Communicator, The Fine Art of Not Saying Stupid Shit. I mean, as you can see, the mugs. Yeah, I know. I love and, it. Uh, <laughs> you know, because the bottom line is, you know, it is communicators jobs. It, it, it is our job to do this. And when you are in the DEI space or the social justice space, words matter in a way. Words should matter everywhere, but they really matter here because we have an opportunity and a responsibility to move the needle on change. And we do that with the words we use and the words we shape. So if you're in a space where you have that kind of power and you don't work to do it the right way. So the book that we're writing uses a model and it's called the depth model. Mm -hmm. And it basically asks you to take the things that you're saying and the words that you're using and how you're communicating and you run them against this model. Depth is an acronym. And, um, and it's about being conscious about your communications. So it asks you, you know, when you're writing something and you're, or when you're communicating, are you communicating with depth? And mm -hmm. the D stands for, um, let me get my, let me get my, my, um, my words straight here. I always have to look it up actually, <laughs> believe it or not. Let me make sure I'm saying it correctly. Been looking at you long. Okay. So are you being deliberate? Are you being educated? Are you being mm -hmm. purposeful? Are you being tailored? Are you being habitual? And basically what it's saying is if you're going to go into this space and have conversations in this space, are you really thinking about what you're doing? And I mean, and as a practitioner, especially. So think about all the companies that when we had, um, when George Floyd was murdered, everybody had the black box. Mm -hmm. Everybody said, you know, we stand with you. And then, you know, a month later they were gone. And it's because they were not communicating with any depth about yeah. what they were doing. And they, they weren't doing what made sense to their organizations. You know, we can't all be Ben and Jerry's. Right. We can't all be that. But you take even a company like Salesforce, which has been known in the industry for being progressive. Yet you have two women of color who recently posted their resignation letters on LinkedIn because they said, we, we say this, but we aren't walking the talk. So, mm -hmm. That happens so much when you have organizations that have this front. And the reason is some of it is just, you know, being dishonest. There are those yeah. organizations. But I want to give people a bit of the doubt and say the problem is you have not connected what you say to who you are. And that's why the communication part is so important. That's where we as communicators, mm -hmm. we have a responsibility 
to call people on it, to say, if we're going to go out in the world and say this about ourselves, what do we have in place? What, what, what are we doing? What are the uh-huh. systems that we have in place that actually make it possible for us to say this, to back up this, to be able to continue saying this, to actually live up to this, to move the needle like we say we're going to do it? What are we most best situated to do? So I think uh-huh. that we throw words around. And that's why I call myself a diversity pragmatist, because I don't think that this is thoughts and prayers. This is work. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is work. You know, and I, I use the analogy of um, Emerald City a lot. Mm. I said so many companies operate like Emerald City, right? It's this streets of, you know, gold and this big emerald castle. And, you know, that's the place that everyone wants to be. And then mm-hmm. you get there and it's a little man on a bike behind a curtain. Yep. Right. It's, it's just this facade versus the Garden of Eden where everything is there. There's. It's not perfect, right? But you know that it's not perfect and you're told that it's not perfect from the beginning. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you have to make the, the choices and the decisions on how you're going to navigate that space. Right. And so that just came to me just now as which company do you want to be? Yeah. Because so yeah. many of them are Oz. <laughs> so right. And, and, the, and the thing is, and, and when you're talking about doing DEI work, it's never done. You don't get it solved. You are always in the process of solving it. You're always doing the work. And that may tire people out, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's hard work, but it's ongoing because no matter what you do until we become all one of everything and everybody's alike, you're always going to be doing this work. And the question Mm -hmm. is, are you committed to it for the long game? Are you committed to doing the work all the time? Because you know what? when you own the space, when you, when you own and create the space, you don't have to open that space to anyone else. You know, we, mm-hmm. we hear and we know we've seen the stats on the value of diversity. Um, stats notwithstanding, common sense tells us that in an ever-changing world, you benefit from having minds that are different, input that's different, uh, different perspectives. But if you're not really willing to build a space where those people can feel open, able, willing to contribute their diversity, if you're not willing to do the work, then don't even bother. I mean, mm-hmm. I hate to say that, but don't because you're not helping. And if you're not committed to doing the work ongoing, then you're just wasting money. If you just throw, you know, a couple of mil to train your company with um, you do, we're going to do mandatory unconscious bias training and everybody's going to be fine. No, they're not. (laughs) You know, this it's ongoing because you do not solve systemic issues with interpersonal solutions. Right. You do not, you have to have systemic solutions and that's ongoing. Love it. Love it. Love it. So Janet, I usually ask my guests, um, what do you do, right? We're always, and as you were saying just now, this work is, is constant, right? It's it's not just a one and done. Right. And so we're constantly giving, we're constantly thinking, we're constantly being trying to be creative, right? Push systems and push boundaries in this space, which can be a little exhausting, right? Which can take a lot out of us. So I always ask my guests, like, what do you do to fill yourself up? What do you do to fill your cup? Um, to make sure that you stay somewhat balanced 
in this space, um, that you take the time that you need to take for yourself um, as, as you continue to push forward? I mean, I would love to give you an answer that was um, great that somebody could learn from. And I'll say, I, it's a journey for me. I'm learning. I'm not very good at it, quite honestly. <laughs> um, and part of that is because the work always shows up in different places in different ways. I mean, I, I have a full-time job with NLI, but I also have a consulting firm, Pragmatic Diversity. So there's just the sheer hours of work that you're doing. And I'm writing a book. You know, mm -hmm. so once you step into this space, you're very immersed in it. I know that what I have done in the past is I will eventually hit a wall and just say, stop. And I just stop it all and um, and walk away from it for a little bit. And in that space, I need to get better at doing mm -hmm. it so that I don't push to that point and walk away. But honestly, what I do is you know, I cook. That's that's sort of my down time. I go in the kitchen and I cook. Um, and, you know, uh, without having to have family around to feed all the time, friends get lucky because, <laughs> you know, so, so they, they like, oh, you're having a bad day? What you cooking? And so, <laughs> so and gumbo is a great one because it takes a long time. There's a lot you got to do. Um, I do that. But I, I admit that it's hard because this is one of those spaces when, you know, your first question was, how did I get into it? And I said, I was born into it. Mm -hmm. If, you're, if this is a space that you're born into and it's a function of who you are, you're doing the work even when you're not doing the work. Yeah. So it is very hard to separate from it. And I think we have to be conscious about it. Um, and I know that I should be better about it. But um, and, and, and the more I do it, the, the many the many places I am, the more I'm aware of that. And I'm working on coming up with some strategies that are intentional. Because that's what happens a lot. I know for me personally, it's not intentional. I just hit the wall and go, I can't do this right now. I got to yeah. walk away from this and think and find some space. And I need to start being more intentional about it. The coach in me right now is like, so what would that take? <laughs> like, you know, I just want to go ahead and go into that mode. Um, but I think that that's it, right? Like, how do you, or what would it look like if you were to take those moments of hitting the wall? Like, right before every single day, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How can you be more intentional of taking that, that break away every day? I have um, one client who went on vacation. I was just like, just glowing, talking about this vacation and you know, everything that they did. And I was like, how can you hold on to that every mm -hmm. single day, even if it's for five minutes? Well, I think the other thing is, is, and this is something that I am seriously kind of coming to the realization is this. Yes, this work is hard work mm -hmm. and it is often thankless work and you are often doing it with people who don't want to do the work and you're, you're fighting and you know yeah. that this is not um, just fun, that this is, this is people's lives that are at stake. I mean, we're not surgeons, we're not saving lives that way, but there's sort of that feel about it, that people's lives are at stake. So, and to do that nonstop, I think that one thing we have to look at is that you know, your client who came back who was glowing. The question I ask is, how did you feel coming back to that work? You brought this glow back, but did you dread going in? Because when you reach the point where pulling away from it, mm -hmm. you feel so much better, you got to ask yourself, why? Is yeah. it the work itself, which obviously that would be the case, or is it the place in which you're doing that work? The space that yep. you don't 
whose space is it? So I think that some of it is we have to look at where we do this work and who we do and for whom we do this work and ask ourselves, is that part of the problem? Because you know what, honestly, honestly, not everybody wants to change. And we we have to expend our energy in the places where people truly want to change. And I'll take on the toughest client in the world who has problems and wants to change. I'll deal with the most set in the set in their ways person who doesn't believe anything I'm saying, but is willing to listen and is trying to do this. But the people who don't want to change, if that's who you're working with, the companies that aren't really serious, if that's who you're working with, I think part of self-care is walking away from that. 100% agree. Right. I'm just too old. To be yeah. irritated every day. I'm just, nope. <laughs> don't don't yeah. deal with people. Don't deal with clients and, and companies. If, nope. Mm-mm. Yeah. I'll go see those boundaries. want to change. Right. That's, that's boundaries. It is. I will go, because I'm going to give that same energy to somebody who wants to change, to somebody who doesn't for a while. And I have to have the, so to your point, how do self-care, my self-care is walking away from crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. I walk away. And sometimes it takes me longer than others, but I walk away. And um, and I think we have to. That's the only way you can keep doing this work. And you don't you don't help if we kill ourselves and get so so disillusioned with this work, then we don't help the people who need us. So yes. I think we have to fight that in this space yes. a lot. And knowing when to walk away. Right? Mm-hmm. Janet, thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. I love talking to you. I know. I was just like, oh, we need to do this like every week. Uh, (laughs) But no, thank you so much. Because I think that there's so many pieces of the puzzle of doing this work that we've touched on today. Right. It doesn't have to be, you know, HR. It doesn't have to be, you know, this one thing. It is an amalgamation of things. It's understanding the words. It's... It's no all of that. Walk away, right? It's this all is the most interdisciplinary things. space you will ever find yourself in, which means there's room for everybody. Yes. To do this. And Janet, if people were to um, wanted to find you, where could they find you? Find me on LinkedIn. I am working on the website. I have not had time to pull it up, but it, but on LinkedIn, I'm most active on LinkedIn and just you know, search my name. I show up and um, and that's where I do most of my verbal verbalization and communicating with the world. So I'm working on it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Janet. And everyone, thank you so much for being a part of today's show. Um, Hopefully that you picked up some nuggets like I did. I was just taking all kinds of notes uh, with this one. And so be sure to subscribe and make sure that you follow us uh, to get more of this content every single week. So thank you. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.